Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 31st, 2020. Right now it is once again Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 46 of this series of discussions. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we shall continue our explanation of how the many blessings of Jacob and Moses upon the 12 tribes of Israel had evidently been fulfilled in the history of the development of European culture and civilization. So far we have presented a review of the outcomes of the blessings of Judah and Levi and now we shall move on to discuss the blessings bestowed upon the tribe of Dan and then of some of the other northern tribes of Israel, those which can be associated with the Phoenicians. Because the false claims of the Jews to be Israelites has generally been accepted for many centuries, and the false perception that Canaan was always a land of dark-skinned Arabs, there is much confusion in modern academia concerning the identity of both Danans and Phoenicians. Something I didn't plan to discuss is the or at least I don't have it here in my notes, but we probably should take a short digression, are the physical descriptions of both the Danans and the Phoenicians by the ancient Greeks themselves, which are especially found in the legends of Homer and in the works of the tragic poets and other writers of the 5th and 6th centuries BC. And there are many countless descriptions of these people, and they are always, almost always, not 100% of the time, but almost always described as being red-haired or blonde-haired, yellow-haired, and very fair-skinned. I would like to know what you think about that, and, and <laughs> at, at the same time, greet you onto the program. So, hello, Truthfits. Thanks for being here. Hello, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, so usually there's a few lies going on. Um, that they'll tr sometimes they'll claim, as you said, that the Phoenicians were Canaanites, and then they'll acknowledge all the great things the Phoenicians accomplished by settling Europe, etc. But they'll have this agenda that claims that they're evil Canaanites, and then on the flip side, they'll claim that the Israelites were quote unquote people and what they're really saying is that they were from Shem which is true right but they'll link Arabs and dark-skinned dark skin people with the Shemites and claim all of them look like that to try and kind of separate create this bridge uh, between Phoenicians and Israelites and then and then they'll also claim that they had a Afrocentric culture and language so they're trying to bridge them with uh, niggers as well so, so there's a lot of lies going on but once you realize that the Phoenicians and Danans were, in fact, Israelites, that they settled all of Europe, that, as you said, they were blonde, red-haired, 
that um, they look just like us, that all the nations that came from them are essentially Europeans, you begin to really see the truth. And um, even British Israel covered this topic a little bit, not so much the Phoenicians, a little bit the Danans, but hopefully we can uh, make some corrections and show all the evidence and show that, you know, they clearly were Israelites and the Europeans come from these people or at least some of the branches and if the Danans looked like us then obviously all the other tribes must have looked similar as well right Bill well well right exactly and and British Israel that they they did us some service by maintaining a lot of the archaeological records that and and pointing the way out to those records and what they say I'm speaking about the earlier works, Sir Henry Layard and archaeologists such as him, who, who had uncovered a lot of the material and, and translated it and presented it in, in scholarly editions. And those archaeologists didn't realize what they were doing. It, it took people who were more Bible-minded to put the pieces together. So the archaeologists weren't inventing these things, and, and they're still available today in, in places such as the um, website for the American Schools of Oriental Research and, and resources like that, where you could actually go get the inscriptions, um, hundreds and hundreds of translated inscriptions, and piece these things together for yourself to a great extent, they pointed the way to that material, and it began to open the inquiry of what we know as Christian identity today. But on the other hand, they were so focused on the Anglo-Saxons alone that they did, to a great degree, ignore the Danans and, and the Phoenicians and the Dorians and, and all of the earlier settlements of Israelites into Europe. So they did a disservice in that regard. And, and that's because they were just so Anglo-centric. They actually wanted to believe that all of the Anglo-Saxons left Europe and came to Britain and settled in Britain so that the Germans were not Angle, Angles or Saxons, which is just incredibly... In, incredibly biased. It, their historical assessment was so biased towards the English race that they didn't care about any of the other branches. I don't think they wanted to look at Germans, Irishmen, or Scots as fellow Israelites, when indeed they were. British Israel was full of the political biases of the Victorian period and the political animosities of the same period. And they were, <clears throat> sorry, and they were Jew-friendly, which always poisoned them, right? Even um, Sharon Turner, who did pro probably a good service, right, wrote a lot on the history of the Saxons. He, he was friends with Jews. He was His best friend, or at least one of his good friends, was that um, Jew who became prime minister, right? He actually encouraged him to run for prime minister, so he was completely blind on that aspect, right? Right. He was completely blind as to the treachery of Jews. His best friend was Benjamin Disraeli. And, and Disraeli actually wrote a few novels 
And, and some of those novels, while on one hand they uphold the lie of Jewish identity, on the other hand, they reveal a lot of the treachery to Jews in in novels like Konigsby and things like that. I, I've seen a. I haven't read them all myself, but I've seen a lot of excellent passages quoted from them, where, where Disraeli is basically telling on himself. He's telling on Jews. He, he's, but but that doesn't make him any less a Jew. And he was the prime minister of of Britain for several years in, in, I believe in the 1840s, 1850s, I'm not exactly sure, but Jews had a great amount of influence over Britain by the 19th century, an incredible amount. And of course it, it was unwarranted influence and undue influence, which has actually caused us a lot of strife in the long run, of course. Well, we should start this with the paths of Dan. And we should bear in mind, and, and I haven't quantified this, but in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is already referring to the 12 tribes as nations. He's already referring to them as nations and as distinct people, as, as peoples, as peoples in their own right. Even at this early time, before any significant national identity is developed culturally among the Israelites, because Deuteronomy chapter 32 isn't very long after those 40 years of wandering in the desert, he's already referring to these people as nations. And that's how he foresaw them. Even though in the blessings, not every tribe of Israel was destined to be a nation in its own right, as we think of nation, as we think of nation with a distinct geographical area that belongs to one single family or ethnicity of people, because a nation is a wider family. Families develop into nations in ancient history, and and the Israelites are an example of that. He's already calling them nations. And in in that regard, he's basically speaking of what is going to happen as if it already was, which Paul explained of, of the books of the prophets and the word of God in the prophets, that he calls things as existing even though they have not yet ex- they had not yet existed, he calls them as existing because his word is sure, and it certainly is going to be fulfilled. So Moses is already referring to these people as nations in his blessings to the tribes and his closing remarks to the people of Israel, as they're recorded in Deuteronomy chapters thirty-one through thirty-three. So, that being said, in the blessings of Moses on the 12 tribes and the blessings of Jacob on the 12 tribes, there's no promise to many of those tribes that they would be a distinct nation, even though there are promises of bounty and success. So, we can't see in historical times every tribe of Israel 
creating or forming its own historical nation in any given place. But we can see that of many of the tribes of Israel. And we could see that in the Paths of Dan, which is proof number 58 that, that we're about to present. And we could see it in subsequent history of the Dorian Greeks, for instance, the Dorians, who were almost certainly of the tribe of Manasseh, and how they became a great nation even in ancient times, never mind in modern. And, and we'll speak about them in modern terms, too, in the weeks to come. So you can see it of certain tribes. You can see how certain prophecies could have been fulfilled and how they did develop in, into nations. But you can't see it of every tribe. And, and that also is a, a fantasy that sprung out of British Israel that came from later British, from later Christian identity people that had began to depart from British Israel in the 20th century, in the last century, that they had tried to identify each European nation with a single tribe of Israel. And to me, that's folly. And these, not all these tribes were guaranteed that they would be a distinct nation, separate from all the others. They didn't have that guarantee. They didn't have that promise. They didn't have that blessing. And and it's very clear in the Assyrian deportations and the Scythian or Sake or if you want to say Saxons or Germanic waves of migration into Western Europe. And I'm using all those terms because all those terms describe those people at one time or another, right? If you think about that, if the tribes had maintained distinct identities, we can't make the association, and that would indeed be providential. In other words, it's conjecture that the Finns or Issachar or the, the, the Dutch or Zebulun, and, and we'll probably discuss Zebulun later in this program, there's these conjectures that... They're just conjectures. They're just guesses. They can't be ascertained in history. It might appear that way in certain prophecies, but they can't be ascertained in history. So I would rather, personally, I would rather stay away from a lot of all that. But if you want to discuss some of them, feel free. I, I, I would just like to stick. I, I In my own work, I just try to stick to what I can prove. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, I, I do find it interesting that, um, <clears throat> as you said, um, Dan would kind of be separate from the other children of Israel, rule over themselves. And you do see um, a lot of Scandinavia was fairly independent, right, from the rest of Europe. They were never um, invaded so much or under an empire like Charlemagne or whatever, and they generally did do their own thing so so it's just fascinating i'm not saying all of scandinavia or dan but but just generally like denmark and um and a lot of scandinavia were independent which is fascinating right the the rest of europe never got that <clears throat> right that's absolutely true and and they they were never for, for the longest time i mean here in the in, in the modern world where all of the Christian nations are conforming 
to this idea of, of democracy and, and this United Nations or this European Union, that they're conforming to compliance with the, the Jewish capitalist bankers and the rest of the world. So, so times have changed. But you're right, the, the Danes especially, Denmark and, and the Danes are related to the people of Sweden and Norway in ancient times, and that's impossible to ignore. Those nations had escaped a lot of the, the, the tyranny and oppression of the popes and the Holy Roman Empire. They were never part of the Holy Roman Empire, and, and other aspects for, for the most part. They escaped a lot of the wars and invasions of Europe, even though the Swedes, I believe, had been Catholic and sent troops into the Thirty Years' War at one time. They did get involved in that. But for the most part, they were isolated and free of a lot of that and ruled over themselves. And we'll see that later on in his presentation. I mentioned the Dane law in Britain, where the Danes in England had insisted on, on maintaining their own laws and living under their own laws right alongside the Anglo-Saxons. And they, they, their laws in, in the Dane law regions of England, the laws of the Danes had been primary, the primary law of the land over the laws of the Anglo-Saxons in certain areas. So I guess in those those eras of medieval England, you basically had to watch which county you were in and whether or not you were under Anglo-Saxon law or Dane law. So that's pretty intriguing that the Danes insisted on living under their own laws and not Anglo-Saxon laws, even though they were a minority in England. And they successfully did that. We're probably digressing and getting ahead of ourselves. The Paths of Dan, because the tribe of Dan seems to have very often retained the name of its tribe in their travels, the migrations of the tribe of Dan are more evident in ancient history than those of any other tribe of Israel. They are so evident that Jewish so-called scholars, because Jews aren't scholars, they can't be, that they're so biased and predisposed before they even open a book that, that it blinds all of their scholarly ventures, and, and they always go off the path into the ditch, as Christ had warned in, in the gospel, right? So-called Jewish scholars have even claimed that Dan was not truly an Israelite tribe. They say that Dan was a European tribe which came to Palestine and was adopted by the Jews, which is incredible. So they would imagine that the Jews wrote a white European tribe into the Bible for some political reason, which is contrary to the entire biblical narrative. So it is evident that Jews would throw the heritage of ancient Israel under the bus in order to maintain their own lies claiming to be Israel. 
And they, they even um, point to Revelation and say, look, Dan's not in there with the other tribes, right? And, and then I don't know how, but they'll claim the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And I've seen so much nonsense. And obviously it all comes from the mind of a Jew, right? Yeah. The truth is that the the Jew is the Antichrist. In Amos chapter 8, verse 14, is the last mention of the tribe of Dan. In the, pic, in, in the illustration of the temple, in Ezekiel chapter 48, the future temple, which is an allegory, it's not to be taken literally, there's a gate for Benjamin and there's a gate for Dan. One gate for Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one gate of Dan. There's gates for the other tribes as well. That's Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 32. The Revelation is speaking of a particular period of time in Revelation chapter 7, where the tribes are sealed. And perhaps the Revelation is telling us something in the fact that the tribe of Dan wasn't sealed, and that Ephraim and Manasseh are being considered separately to arrive at the number 12. Perhaps because this is speaking about a specific period of time in the fall of Rome, perhaps the tribe of Dan didn't need to be sealed. Perhaps there's another reason for that. And that's, I am persuaded that that is true, that that is the reason. Dan didn't need to be sealed. We could see where Dan is. We can't see where the other tribes are. That's part of the reason. The first century BC Greek historian, Theodore Siculus, gave an account of the Hebrew exodus from Egypt, where he was quoting from the earlier historian, Hecatahius of Abdera. Hecatahius was a Greek historian and skeptic philosopher of the fourth century BC. Hecatahius had given a strange account of the Israelite exodus from an Egyptian point of view. So, citing him, Diodorus wrote in reference to the Hebrews that the aliens were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them banded together and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea. The colony was headed by a man called Moses, outstanding both for his wisdom and for his courage. And that's from Theodore Siculus' Library of History, Book 40, Chapter 3. Theodorus, earlier in that work, in Book 1, Chapter 9, had accounted Moses as a lawgiver and in Book 40, Chapter 3, he goes on to describe Moses as a founder of cities. This Cadmus was called the Phoenician. Cadmus the Phoenician, throughout classical Greek literature. And he was the legendary founder of Thebes in Greece, which happened to be named very similarly to a city in Egypt. Danos, who was usually called the Egyptian, Danos the Egyptian, 
was the legendary leader of the Danans, or Danae, who came to Greece from Egypt, which could only have been a portion of the Israelite tribe of Dan, as Hecatahius, by way of Diodorus, had indirectly attested. This event, and, and let me see that a member of the tribe of Dan, members of the tribe of Dan, collectively, would be called Dani. In Hebrew, it would be transliterated into our language as D-A-N-I-Y. But in Greek, because Greek is a little different in its noun endings, in its declensions, it's D-A-N-A-I. So it's basically the same word with a slightly different ending. This event, the migration of the Danae, or Danans, from Egypt into the Peloponnesus, this event was parodied in later classical literature as the flight of the daughters of Danos from the sons of Ahigiptus, or Egypt, an example being a tragic a play by the tragic poet Aeschylus, which was titled Suppliant Maidens, because the Danans are pictured as coming to Greece and begging for refuge from people who were ostensibly Ionian or Athenian by race. So, so Bill, this um, Danaeus pro- probably um, is just a legend, right? Because they imagined every tribe had some great patriarch or half god or god and 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 um the guy who wrote this uh who diodorus was quoting he, he was writing a thousand years later right so he, he probably just imagined that they came from a Danaeus, which is kind of true it's just the patriarch then right well well right exactly and hecatahius is writing in the fourth century bc and he's a greek writing from a greek perspective so the and and he's trying to write from a historical perspective, whereas Aeschylus is a Greek tragic poet of a hundred years sooner than Hecatahius. So Aeschylus is writing sometime in the middle of the fifth century BC, and he's writing from a um fanciful, mythical perspective, which doesn't mean that what he says isn't historical, but that's the way the poets had taken history and made these fanciful tales from actual historic events in order to relate the culture and the history, and and that's simply the way it, it, it developed in early Greece. So Homer is an interesting mix of actual history and mythical legend, fanciful legend. And that's almost all of the Greek writers. Even Herodotus had repeated many myths and legends which could not be literally true, but which, at least many of which, actually did represent true historical events from the ancient past. So we have this suppliant maidens, this tale of a Danos, who's the mythical patriarch of the Danans, and we see in in our scriptures that there was a patriarch of the Danans, and he was the son of Dan, the son of Jacob. 
so it, it's the Greek legend represents something that's historically true, but it does it in a fanciful way that's not necessarily literally true. And that's the way myth and legends work. That That's simply the way things pan out in the end. That's the way it's it seems to have always worked in practically every white culture. And um, we, we already talked about it, but Cadmus might have been slightly later, right? Even though he's associated with the people fleeing from, from Egypt by boat, that he probably came from the from the seaport tire, right, with the Phoenicians. Do you think that would probably be more accurate? But it's hard a uh, thousand years later to get the exact chronologically uh, dates and all that. Exactly. They, the Greeks must have known that these two men had a common origin from the same race of people. And they're, they're here together in this legend, in, in this account of the Exodus that came down through Hecatahius and Diodor Siculus. So this is an account of the Exodus, which is basically from the Egyptian point of view, from the Egyptians perhaps wishing to save face because the Hebrew scriptures were accepted in ancient times as being true. So the Egyptians wishing to save face, they must have contrived this story and I believe it may even ultimately come from Manetho, but I'm not sure. I probably shouldn't be quoted on that. I believe there is an older source for this story than Hecatahius, but it's the Egyptian point of view that they are expelling these aliens from the country rather than the god of the aliens, because the Hebrews are aliens, the Egyptians, rather than the god of the aliens punishing the Egyptians and forcing them to allow them to leave, right? So that's just two different sides to the same story. Here we have the Egyptian point of view. For that reason, to me, it is more credible because it serves as an independent witness of the Exodus account. And it is more revealing because the Exodus account and the way that the Hebrew scriptures are written are never concerned with things that are peripheral. And, and we'll get into that a little later with the building of Tyre and the development of Tyre as a great city. It's The scriptures only focus on the, the immediate characters and their actions, which is... which are being described that the, for instance, in the kingdom period, we have David and Solomon and all the subsequent kings in Samaria and in Jerusalem. And you never really learn a whole lot about what is going on in the rest of ancient Israel. Tyre is not even mentioned from the time at that it's, it falls to the lot of Asher in Joshua chapter 19 until the first mention of Hiram, king of Tyre, in the rule of David, in the early years of the rule of David. That's like a 400-year gap 
where the city isn't even mentioned. But it becomes one of the great cities of antiquity. And it's better remembered by the ancient Greeks than Jerusalem is. Tyre is much better remembered and much more frequently mentioned by the ancient Greeks than Jerusalem is. Yet it doesn't get a mention for 500 years or 400 years in, in, in the book of Judges. And in 1 Samuel, Tyre doesn't, isn't even on a map. That doesn't mean the city's not there. It means that the biblical, biblical accounts are only focused on the central characters and, and what they're doing. So the historical parts of scripture aren't panoramic. They're very focused on key individuals and, and key aspects of the history of Israel and Judah, where the outlying regions are, are virtually ignored all the time. There, there are most of the 12 tribes. How many mentions are there of, of the tribe of Issachar? Issachar is mentioned in Judges chapter 10. And then there's a man in Issachar in 1 Kings chapter 4. And that's a jump of about 300 years. And then there's not another mention until 1 Kings chapter 15. And that might be another 100 years. I'm just guessing that the date ranges, but they're probably pretty accurate. After that, after 1 Kings chapter 14, there's not another mention of Issachar. And, and it's basically the same with all of the tribes, that they get their inheritance, and, and there may not be another mention of them at all. That there's In Judges chapter 12, we see a mention of the country of Zebulun, and except for the genealogy and some repeated information in First Chronicles, which is only repeating what we read of Zebulun in the books of Joshua and Judges. In the historical portion of First Chronicles, Zebulun's not mentioned again until chapter 12, which has to do with the original conquest of Canaan, in the historical portion that's contemporary, Zebulun's not mentioned again until 1 Chronicles chapter 27, which is a gap of a couple of hundred years. So these outlying tribes and these outlying cities, just because they're never mentioned in, in the Bible, doesn't mean that they're not there. It doesn't mean that nothing is happening within them. And we have to fill in what we can of the blanks from secular history. So just because the Greeks mention Tyre quite often doesn't mean that it's not an Israelite city because the Bible basically ignores what's going on in Tyre. That's not true. It is an Israelite city, as we shall see. That's a digression, but it was probably necessary. So... Cadmus was called the Phoenician throughout classical Greek literature. And you're right, for him to be associated by the Greeks as a Phoenician, and we'll see the reasons for this a little later, and still to be associated with the people who left Egypt at the time of Moses, Cadmus had to be an Israelite for that reason. He couldn't have been a Canaanite and, and an 
an individual who is totally unrelated from Danos the Egyptian, or else why are these men mentioned as coming to Greece together? So it seems the Greeks knew that these men were related, and in later times, as you said, a thousand years after the fact, or really about 800 years after the fact, down to the in the writings of Homer, we see that they're related, yet they came from two different places, because one's an Egyptian and one's a Phoenician. But they're related and put together as if they were contemporaries. And Cadmus must have followed Danos by perhaps a couple of hundred years, because Tyre wasn't built yet. And Herodotus calls Cadmus, as we will see, because I cite it later in his paper, Herodotus calls him Cadmus the Tyrian. He makes him a specific sort of Phoenician. And we'll explain that, this, that, that reason a little later. So Cadmus was called the Phoenician throughout classical Greek literature. And he was a legendary founder of Thebes in Greece, while Danos was called an Egyptian. Even though as we saw from Hecatahius and Diodorus Siculus, that these men were aliens in Egypt. Danos was an alien in Egypt, being expelled from the country, right? <laughs> According to the Egyptian version of the Exodus that's repeated by Hecatahius here. So, understanding this, we must conclude that what is known to scholars as the Mycenaean civilization, was Danan Greek. They called themselves Danans. Homer had called the king of Mycenae, Agamemnon, and the king of Sparta, his brother. He called them Danans throughout his Iliad and Odyssey. He called them Danans very explicitly. In a 2002 I'm sorry, in 2002, there was a paper published. I'm going to link it with this presentation in PDF format, titled Dan 2, A Chronicle of the Excavations and the Late Bronze Age Mycenaean Tomb. And this paper described a so-called Mycenaean tomb because it was exactly like the tombs that are found in Mycenae, in ancient Mycenae in Greece, and it was a peculiar burial style found in both ancient Mycenae and in this tomb, which was discovered at Tel Dan. Tel Dan is often used as the name for Laish in northern Israel. If we go back to the Book of Judges, I believe, a portion of the tribe of Dan moved north and conquered the city Laish from the Canaanites and occupied it. And it was outside of the territory, north of Israel, in, the ancient, in a portion of the ancient land of Bashan, which was not included in Joshua's division of the land among the tribes of Israel. So this Laish was just north of ancient Israel but not actually in the original land of Israel. And we had this, we know that the tribe of Dan inhabited this city 
at this time to which this tomb dates, and it's a quote-unquote Mycenaean tomb. And that befuddles Jews who think that the Jews were ancient Israelites, so they're claiming that this tribe of Dan must have been Europeans who moved to Palestine and the Jews adopted them as a tribe and and rewrote the Bible to accommodate that. And, and that's just a ridiculous assertion. It's a ridiculous assumption. This should be no surprise. The Israelites had tell Dan were of the tribe of Dan, just as the Mycenaeans were of the tribe of Dan. An archaeological study of the tomb was first published in 2002. However, it is evident that the authors of the study of the findings at Tel Dan in Palestine are oblivious to the fact that the Mycenaean Greeks, who were called Danae, and the Israelite tribe of Dan were indeed one and the same people. And if the Jews recognize that these were one and the same people, if they admit that the tribe of Dan were originally Israelites, then they have to admit that they're not Israelites. They have to admit that. And they won't. So scholarship is poisoned by this idea that the Jews are Israelites or the Israelites are anything other than white European people. The truth is that Israelites are the forerunners of white European people. And the archaeology proves that. And then you take the archaeology and those ancient myths and legends about Danos the Egyptian and fleeing Egypt and coming into Greece, and you put them together, and you have a perfect picture of truth that agrees. It's all in agreement. And you don't have to make up any stories about the Bible in order to come up with an alternative theory. You really don't. It's naturally, it falls into place naturally with the Bible when you look at things our way, which is the right way to look at them, according to Hecatahius and Diodorus Siculus and all the other ancient Greek writers. These men didn't. Do you think modern scholars use that name Mycenaean civilization to obscure the name Dan? Yes. They do it deliberately. Yes, they do. Because Mycenae, or as I would pronounce it in ancient Greek, Mukanahi, Mycenae was the city of Agamemnon, who was the leader of the Greeks at Troy. And he was the chief king of all the Greek kings that assembled at Troy, right? They were seen, Odysseus was the king of Ithaca. It, it was um, the brother of, of Agamemnon. I, I'd lost his name. I don't, you could probably, the wife, the husband of Helen of Troy, who Alexandro stole from under him. His name is lost to me right now. It, it's like I had a, a connection break in my brain or something. But his his Menelaus. brother was I'm sorry. Menelaus was Menelaus, thank you. I just couldn't come up with it. <laughs> I just couldn't come up with it. I'm sorry. Menelaus was the king of Sparta. And his brother Agamemnon is the king of Mycenae. And other kings of Greek cities. They were all separate independent men 
and they were their rulers in their own right of their own little parts of Greece, but Agamemnon was chosen to be their leader in the Trojan War. So, for that reason, this is called Mycenaean civilization, but you're right, it should be called Danon civilization. It was the it, it was a three or four hundred year period where these Danans that left Egypt and settled in Greece had dominated the Peloponnesus and the surrounding islands and built their own civilization there, which endured until the Dorian invasion. And we'll speak of the Dorian invasion perhaps in 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 an upcoming presentation. I didn't, I purposely omitted the Dorian invasion today because it should be discussed in relation to Ephraim and Manasseh, not in relation to Dan or Asher. So the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus and that was not the end of the Danans, but it was the end of Danan dominance in Greece. It would not suit the Jews to discover that this branch of so-called Indo-European Aryan Greeks were indeed Hebrews, and they were. Although on occasion, such a discussion has not been avoided, and that is where Jews claim that the tribe of Dan was adopted, which is totally contrary to the Bible. It's totally contrary to Scripture. And of course, all of the archaeologists who were mentioned in connection with the study of this tomb are Jews. The Israelite tribe of Dan certainly were a seagoing tribe at an early time. In Judges chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah, we read a lamentation where she professes having missed certain tribes that did not take part in the conquest of the Canaanites in northern Israel. So, after the Israelites defeat the Canaanites and their general, Sisera, is slain at the hand of a woman, Deborah sung this song of Deborah, and in part she said, as it reads in Judges chapter 5, verse 17, Gilead abode beyond Jordan. And why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. We shall discuss this mention of Asher later in relation to the Phoenicians. While Deborah celebrated her victory approximately 166 years after the death of Joshua, the son of Nun, according to the narrative in the book of Judges, which would be at least 200 years after the Exodus. So Deborah sang this song sometime around 1250 B.C. And that's an important date to understand, 1250 B.C., the Song of Deborah, the defeat of the Canaanites in northern Israel. Another 600 years later, the prophet Ezekiel would connect the tribe of Dan with the Greeks, where he wrote in his Lamentation of Tyre. Now, Ezekiel is writing this 
it, it's more like 650 years later. Ezekiel is writing this sometime around 600 BC, or maybe a little later, because perhaps the chapters in Ezekiel are out of order. And that's easily demonstrable as they exist in the Masoretic text. So he was writing this either not long before or not long after the fall of Jerusalem, which he records. So that was 585 BC. I tend to believe that this was written a little sooner. But Ezekiel, in his lamentation of Tyre, the ancient city of the Tyrians, connected the tribe of Dan with the Greeks, where he wrote, Dan also, and Javan, going to and fro, occupied in thy fairs. Bright iron, cassia, and calamus were in thy market. He's lamenting ancient Tyre, the city. And Javan, in Hebrew, is Yavan, or Yavana, and it is the name which was used by both Hebrews and Persians to describe the Ionian Greeks. Javan was a Japhethite, and he was the father of the Ionian Greeks, beginning with Genesis chapter 10, where it said that Javan would occupy the islands of the Mediterranean. That shows you that they were trading in iron, right? They must have had iron mines all over the Mediterranean. Yes. And been trading in it, right, for weapons. Yes, absolutely. So Ezekiel makes a direct connection of Dan or the Danning Greeks with Javan or the Ionian Greeks in 600, say 600 BC or thereabouts. So now, Going back in history once again, from the time of the pharaoh, Merneptah, in the last decades of the 13th century BC, only a few years before the traditional date for the beginning of the Trojan War, and only a few years or so after the Song of Deborah, which was 1250 BC, Egypt began to record the invasions of the so-called Sea Peoples. I think this is generally dated to about 1212 or 1210 BC. And that's important to note also. These dates, to me, are important to note so that we see the development of the children of Israel on the coast of Palestine. So the Song, Song of Deborah 1250, Deborah's complaining that Asher... The tribe of Asher didn't join the battle against the Canaanites. They stayed in their port cities on the seashore, abode in his breaches. In that context, that word means ports. And Deborah is complaining that Dan was off in ships somewhere in 1250 BC. So now we're at 1210 BC. And Egypt begins to record the invasions of the so-called Sea Peoples. And while the identification of some of these tribes is arguable, others can certainly be identified. And these are the tribes, the names from the Egyptian perspective. And among them are the Peleset, which are the Philistines. Peleset is the, the Hebrew word for Philistine. And then there's the Denyan and the Shardan, which are Danans. And the Tayeker, 
or T-J-E-K-E-R, which seems to be a reference to Tuker. Tuker was a prince of Salamis and a hero of the Trojan War, who was also ostensibly a Danon, but being a notable man, he and, and being on Salamis, his father was the king of the island Salamis, which is just off the northeastern coast of the Peloponnesus, I believe. And he actually fell out of his father's favor in the Trojan War. But he was a great prince, and he was a hero of the Trojan War. So it seems that one of these tribes of the Sea People are named for him, and he was ostensibly a Danon. Of the other Sea Peoples, the Luca may be associated with the Lycians, who had also taken their kings from the Trojan princes, as we had mentioned in our last presentation, or perhaps the one before that. Then there are the Teresh, Ekwesh, Weshesh, and Shekelesh, some of which may be conjectured to have been Achaeans and Greeks of Italy or Sicily. We will not offer our own conjectures as to their identities here as we are focusing on Dan. I want to say one thing about this word, Akahia. The word Akahia not only appears as a general name for a portion of Greece from the time of Homer, because Homer used it in reference to the Danans, but Akahia also appears in Anatolia. And that word Akahia to me, and this is conjectural, but if we look at it from Hebrew, it means brotherhood of Yahweh. That's what it could very well mean, or brother of Yahweh, one or the other. So that's just a, a digression, which is not in my notes, but that's one possibility for the origin of that term. And that's based on the Greek spelling of the term Akahian. So that's only conjecture, but I had to throw it in here. The Sherden. And this is even more serious of a connection. The Sherden settled on Sardinia, and the name of the island is connected to them, and I will explain how. Sometimes transliterations from ancient inscriptions bearing the name are spelled Shardana. In Hebrew, the word Shar. And Strong's, that's Strong's number 7604, Shar, S-H-A apostrophe A-R, in Strong's English transliteration. So it would be Shar or Shar in English. In Hebrew, that word means a remnant, a remainder, or something left behind. The Shardana were associated with the land of Canaan as well as the island of Sardinia. And they are certainly the remnant of Dan that was left behind in Palestine after other portions of Dan migrated either to Greece or northwards to Laish. An ancient Egyptian document 
called the Onomasticon of Aminope and believed to have been written in the 20th dynasty, which is around 1100 BC, explicitly mentions the presence of the Sherden in Palestine. Various anthropomorphic figurines, and there'll be a link to a webpage displaying some of these, that's not a Christoginian page, when I post these notes to this presentation, various anthropomorphic figurines discovered on Sardinia also attest to the links between the Shardana and the Sea Peoples, the Philistines, and Palestine. On Sardinia was also found an ancient inscription mentioning the Shardana. But these anthropomorphic and when I say anthropomorphic, that's figurines that are shaped like men, right? They're wearing hats. They're wearing the same head headgear or headwear that the Philistines wore and that other sea peoples wore as they are depicted on the inscriptions of Merneptah from Egypt. So there's indisputable links between the Sea Peoples and the tribe of Dan on the coast of Palestine and the people that ultimately settled Sardinia. And the island is named after the remnant of Dan, Shardana, Sardinia. That's not hard to put together. And the Jews hate this, so they claim that the tribe of Dan really wasn't Hebrew. They were just adopted Indo-Europeans, which is absolutely incredible. And the uh, prophecy kind of <clears throat> suggests that the Danans would be naming places after them, right? That they would be a viper's trail, that um, wherever they go, they would leave paths. So you would expect to find the tribe of Dan's name wherever they went, right? And we see that, for example, where they uh, first renamed the city of Laish to the camp of Dan, right? Yes. And, and that's very credible. That's a very credible interpretation of that. If Dan was to leave a viper's trail, then and, – and how does a viper travel, right, from, from one place to another, kind of side to side? It goes side to side, side to side, side to side. So, so – we see Dan left this crooked path that goes in different directions wherever he traveled, that we see the evidence of that in history. So that's a very credible interpretation, in my opinion. And we see a lot of the European rivers um, seem to have changed names, uh, like the Danube used to be named after Ishtar, right? It was the river Ister, but it got renamed to the Danube. And then there are other rivers by the Black Sea, the Dniester, Dnieper, the River Don, they all seem to have been named after this tribe of Dan. And and the path generally leads uh, to Denmark, right? Or at least to the north of uh, Europe. Well, well right. And, and that's true. And I accept that, but I can't prove it. I, I, I mean, there's this... Um online etymology 
dictionary and this is basically representative of what most of the river most of the dictionaries say about rivers named dan and from the entry on danube major river of europe flowing into the black sea german donau hungarian duna russian duna we see the vowels are always sort of replaceable right from the latin danuvius or the late Latin Danubius. And they claim it's from Celtic Danu, from Proto-Indo-European Danu, meaning river. And they say, compare Don, Deniper, Deniester. So I think that the assertion that Danu is a Proto-Indo-European Indo-European word for river is only a conjectural assumption. Because I do not see words in modern Indo-European languages which supports the assumption. Although I could be wrong. I don't know of any such words. If there were such words, meaning river, in other Indo-European languages, the dictionaries do not supply them. Whereas they usually do supply them for other such words. I would like to give this subject more study, but what I'm saying is that if Danu really meant river in Proto-Indo-European, that we should have words similar to Danu, which means river, in modern Indo-European languages. And I haven't seen one. All they offer are the names of other rivers to support their assertion. But that's not enough proof. We're the actual words that mean river that resemble this word Danu. So by itself, their so-called proof offers its own conjecture as evidence. That's not sufficient to me. It's not sufficient to me that other rivers like Don and Dnieper and Deniester also begin with this syllable Dan isn't proof by itself of this supposed proto the existence of this supposed proto-Indo-European word. So an assertion that perhaps a particular and a particular tribe which had migrated at early times and which was on the forefront of exploration in Europe, name these rivers after itself, is just as valid as their claim of this Proto-Indo-European word meaning river. What I'm saying is that your opinion is just as valid as the opinion, that the competing opinion in the dictionaries, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems that the Danans had settled Sardinia not long after other portions of the tribe of Dan had departed from Egypt for Greece, but that their path was different from that of their brethren. From there, in the ensuing centuries, elements of the same tribe of Dan settled in Ireland and also in modern Denmark. Some Irish histories, such as the History of Ireland by Geoffrey Keating, first published in 1634, state that the Tawatha de Danon had been expelled from Ireland by the Milesians or Malaysians. 
Although even in the context of that work, the expulsion could not have been complete, there is no evidence of where they may have gone. There's no evidence. Where did they go? So the Tawatha de Danon left Ireland. Where'd they go? In that same history, the Tawatha de Danon of Ireland are also connected to the Boeotians who were of the Danons of Greece. The Boeotian Danons. The important point to note is that according to all ancient records, the Danons came to Greece from Egypt by sea, and the earliest Sardinians are connected to the sea peoples called Danian and Sherdan, as the names are translated into English from the Egyptian records. I should say both they and the earliest Sardinians. But in the Greek, the Danian are Danoi, or Danans. And there are inscriptions linking the early Sardinians to the name Shardana, so the names are all equivalents. At the same time, the Bible attests that the tribe of Dan were a seagoing tribe. So these people, also connected to Dan in Palestine, can be nothing other than the Hebrew tribe of Dan. I don't know who else they could be. They can't be anybody else. They must be the Hebrew tribe of Dan. The connection of the Danes to the tribe of Dan might seem fanciful. But while various other Germanic tribes, such as the Angles, the Kimbri, and the Jutes, had inhabited parts of the Danish peninsula at diverse times, the Danes were first mentioned in history by the Greek historian Procopius in the early 6th century, and then by Jordanes in his History of the Gods later in that same century. Unfortunately, the Danes have no notable early writing of their own. In the 8th and 9th centuries, the Danes established a significant presence in both Ireland and in Britain, where the Danish-dominated districts, in the Danish-dominated districts, Dane law took precedence over Anglo-Saxon law for many centuries. This circumstance of the Danes insisting on abiding by their own laws alongside Anglo-Saxon laws seems to me to be one fulfillment of the blessing that Dan shall judge his people, meaning his own people, which indicates that Dan would have his own laws and judge his own people distinctly from the other tribes over which Judah would be a lawgiver and judge. And um, the, the other parts of the prophecy then do indicate that they would be like um, a raiding Viking type, uh, you know, people tribe um, where it says, well, we've read the first bit, Dan shall be a serpent by the way and Adder in the path, right? But then it says, the bite of the horse's heels so that his rider shall fall backward. That when you look at the history of the Danes, they were constantly uh, pillaging and raiding all the European nations, right? Causing kingdoms to tumble and, and fall backwards. And it forced them to unify and homogenize under one great Christian monarch. 
um, you know, and this and they this wasn't just England and France. They also went round to Spain, to Italy. They went down the rivers to East Europe, even um, attacking and working as mercenaries for the Byzantine Empire. So all of Europe was affected just by these um, one tribe of Danes and Scandinavians, right? Yes. <clears throat> yes, absolutely. And, and then we read in, in Deuteronomy 33 where Moses said, Dan is alliance whelp, he shall leap from Bashan. And that Bashan, that, that Bashan is in the north of Israel. And this is quite prophetic that Moses said this because where it plays out in the book of Joshua, the land apportioned to the tribe of Dan was far south of Bashan. It was not in Bashan. But when Dan had conquered Laish, when a portion of Dan departed and conquered Laish, Laish was in Bashan, in the ancient land of Bashan. That there was this ancient land of Bashan which occupied a great deal of what we should probably call northern Palestine, which included some of the land that was later apportioned to the 12 tribes but also was what was extended into parts of what we later knew as Syria and parts of the land of Manasseh, which was east of the Jordan. And Laish was just north of that in a portion of the land that belonged to ancient Bashan, but did not belong to any of the 12 tribes. So, Dan shall leap from Bashan, that sort of informs us that the tribe of Dan that went to Laish, that dwelt in Bashan, in Tel Dan, that they didn't stay there, that they even left from there. And that's according to that prophecy of Moses. How would Moses know, if that wasn't inspired by the word of God, how would Moses know? That later on, in the middle of the book of Judges somewhere, that Danans would go and settle in Bashan so that they could leap from there. So not even all of the Danans at Bashan actually stayed in Bashan, although there are records in Scripture that they remained there. Dan remained in Bashan until the Assyrian deportations. So at least some of Dan remained there for all that time. And what do you think of the um, last bit of the prophecy where it just says, um, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord, that when, when you look at the fact that the last people to Christianize were, in fact, the Scandinavians, it kind of does fit, right? Although I know you could probably argue that um, Estonia and Lithuania, you know, they were a little bit after but generally speaking, the, the Dan Danes and the Scandinavians were the last to accept the salvation of Christ, right? So it kind of does add up. <clears throat> yes, I don't think most of them were Christianized until after the 10th century, right? A thousand years after Christ. It was quite some time. Yeah. So if they did get there early on, that's a long time of being pagans, right? Yes. And, and some interceptor says waiting for the salvation of, of the Lord, which I sort of lean towards that interpretation. But the meaning is virtually the same. <clears throat> Dan would be a servant by the way, 
an adder in the path waiting for the salvation of the Lord. And, and that is how I would interpret that. And that observation is a very good one. That the Danans, the people that we could associate with the tribe of Dan were indeed some of the last converted to Christianity. Yes. So it seems to me that the Danes certainly did fulfill this prophecy. And I do believe that the Danes had very likely come from the expulsion of the Tuatha de Danon, which happened when the Milesians invaded Ireland, or Malaysians, as I call them, as they invaded Ireland and took Ireland for themselves. Not all of the Danon were expelled, but a great number of them were displaced from their homelands, and they had to go somewhere. And we're not told in Irish history where they went, but these people named Danes appear in what we now know as Denmark. So while other tribes dominated Denmark at various times, the Jutes and, and even Angles and Kimri, which were the early Kimroi, right? The Kimmerians. The Danes never left, and they always continued to see themselves as Danes. They may have been Germanized, if you will, and, and speak a an early Germanic form of language, but that still doesn't unmake them Danes. So it, it's... The connection is intriguing. I believe it is true. We don't have ancient Danish literature by which to prove it. But all of the circumstances are there, and it seems that they fulfilled this prophecy very well, as you pointed out. That brings us to the Phoenicians, the second half of this presentation. I don't know if it's really going to be half, because this has gone that this discussion of Dan is a lot longer than I thought it would be. But if you had the time, so do I. Yeah, let's go for it. Jewish, once again, right? Jewish interpretations of scripture insist that the Israelites had never really inhabited the coastal cities of the land, which was inherited by the northern tribes. But rather, they insist that those areas remained in the hands of the Canaanites, who were the Phoenicians. And... If you, if you look at um, most Bible maps from the time of, most Bible maps that are drawn to depict the time of the book of Judges or the book of Joshua, they have these fanciful maps and the territories of Asher and even, I believe, parts of Manasseh and the other tribes in the north of Israel are truncated from the coast, are cut off from the coast, and they have a label Phoenicia in their place, as if Canaanites inhabited Phoenicia, and as if the Israelites did not inhabit the coasts. But when you read the text of Joshua, chapters 15 through 20 or 21, where it describes the inheritances of the 12 tribes, they certainly did inherit the coasts. And if you read the text 
like Judges chapter 5 and other texts, many other texts in throughout Scripture prove that they do inhabit the coast. So the narrative of the Scripture proves that the maps that are drawn by these so-called Bible scholars today are just lies. These maps are lies. There is no separate area called Phoenicia. Not until after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations and the coming of the Greeks and Romans when they called a particular area Phoenicia and divided it. And they called it Phoenicia, not because it was ever a country. And, and I don't have this in my notes, but I'll take another digression. Phoenicia was never a country. It was only what the Greeks had called the coast of Palestine. And they called it that for a particular reason. Because one of the industries of the people inhabiting that coast was the manufacture of a purple dye from a shellfish. I think it's a murex clam, or it might be a clam. I might be wrong about that, but it's a murex, M-U-R-E-X. And it's some sort of mollusk, and it has this, this fluid in it that is extracted as purple dye for purple clothing. So, the Greek word for purple is phoinus. P-H-O-E-N-O-S is the way that that would be written in English. It's really P-H-O-I-N-O-S. So, phoinus, the genitive form of that is phoinike. And phoinike is translated transliterated into English as Phoenicia. So it's the Greek word Phoenike, which would be P-H-O-I-N-I-K Ada, which is a long A in, in my opinion. The Ada is a vowel that's sort of in between an A and an E. And sometimes it's written in English as an a, but usually it's written in English as an E with a little symbol on top of it, like a little A-shaped roof symbol. or I don't know even know what you call the symbol, right? Because we don't use that symbol in English language, but we do see it in words that are translated into English from French and similar languages. So I don't even know the name of the symbol. It's a carré or something, right? Over the letter. I think it's a carré that's placed over the letter, and it looks like a little angle, a little arrow, or if you will. Yeah, and that, that purple was so rare um, that there was something about it. It was such high quality that um, the purple would always stay, and it would be, when you dipped it properly, it would spread perfectly. You know, like when you dye something like one part might come out really dark and one light. Well, this purple was amazing and it so sought after that all the elites um, had purple. Like, for example, the Romans, I uh, believe if you was a senator, you was allowed a little bit of purple round one shoulder, round your waist, you know, and that signified that you were um, upper class, essentially. 
and um it was also called Tyrian purple you know after tyre and um oh yeah sorry that was the other thing i was going to say is there's also that legend that europe was birthed from the phoenix right and phoenix is just another variation that of that word foinos right and obviously europe <laughs> comes from the phoenicians the israelites right bill yes absolutely and and europa europa the that the <laughs> The rape of Europa, right? Europa fled Tyre and tried to get to Europe, and she ended up on one of the islands. Maybe it was Cyprus, maybe it was Crete, I forget. And, and Zeus, I, I think, or Apollo, I think it was Zeus had, had transformed himself into a bull and raped Europa. I, I forget exactly how the fanciful tale goes because it's just all fodder to me but the history it represents is more important europe was named for this female character who was raped by zeus and and gave birth to sons so and and i i believe that um she was said to be the daughter of cadmus the phoenician and either the niece or, or the mother, I, I forget exactly, right? Of, of or the sister of Heracles. So, and some kings came from her. Didn't, was it Sarphedon, or am I off there? Maybe, perhaps Minos. She was related to Heracles. She was related to King Minos. She was related to King Sarpedon. Yes, some of the ancient um, mythical or semi-mythical kings and Greek heroes came from or were related to Europa, who was a Phoenician, who was a Tyrian. And, and this is important to note also. This timeline is important to note. As we get um, the Song of Deborah, Dan and Chips and Asher and his port cities in, in 1250 BC, and then the mentions of the Sea Peoples and the connection to the tribe of Dan, in the sea peoples, in those groups, and Dan is actually two of those groups, which are separate portions of the tribe of Dan, the Danans and, and the Shardana, or the remnant of Dan, right, that, that are among the sea peoples, that's 1210 BC, and then there's the Trojan War, and the heroes of the Trojan War, and, and we have one of the sea peoples, one of their names is very similar to one of those heroes, which is Tuker, who was one of the Greek heroes of the Trojan War. And, and now we're going to, we're, we're working our way down to when Tyr was built according to Flavius Josephus, and it fits right in like a glove. And, and we'll get to that. But I would rather discuss the coast and some of the other cities briefly first. The truth is that the coast of Manasseh and Asher, which would be northern or, or the southern portion of Phoenicia drawn on the maps, right? Those coasts were indeed inhabited by the Israelites, even in the places where Canaanite populations had remained. In the scriptural narrative, Tyre, Akko and Sidon were indeed inhabited by Asher, although the children of Asher had initially failed to drive out the Canaanites from Akko and Sidon. That's Judges chapter 1, 
verse 31, it says that the children of Asher failed to drive out the Canaanites from Akko and Sidon. But when you get to Judges chapter 5, that's an account of the children of Israel defeating those same Canaanites. So I, I, I don't see, you know, the, the Jews love to point out that Asher didn't drive the Canaanites out from these areas, from Judges 1, but they don't read the rest of the book of Judges. And, and then you get to the time of David and Solomon, and there was only a remnant of Canaanites remaining, and they enslaved them. They put them in bondage. Dor was indeed inhabited by the tribe of Manasseh, and the city was their significant port city, although Manasseh also initially failed to drive all the Canaanites out of Dor. Later, according to scripture, the Canaanites who remained in Sidon, Akko, and Dor were put in bondage. The next port city to the south from Dor was Joppa, and it was in the territory of Dan, and that's the home of the remnant of Dan, the Shardana, who ultimately settled in Sardinia, and it's named for them. So once again, where Deborah had said in Judges chapter 5 that Gilead abode beyond Jordan, and why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. We see that Asher did indeed dwell on the coasts of the Mediterranean in the territory that was divided to Asher as the Hebrew word translated as breaches means ports in such a context. In the Judges period, before Israel had a national king from Judah, and that would be King Saul would be the first such national king, right? The king ruling over the whole nation, all 12 tribes. Before that, in diverse times, prominent men became the rulers or kings of certain cities. So in Judges chapter 9, we see that the men of Shechem made Abimelech their king. Now Shechem is in the land of Ephraim. And Abimelech was a wicked man. But another such king, who was ostensibly a much more noble man than Abimelech, was Hiram, the king of Tyre. According to scripture, there was no mention of any Canaanites remaining in Tyre. It spoke of Canaanites in Judges chapter 1 who remained in Dor or who remained in Akko and in Sidon on the coast of Asher. It never mentioned Canaanites in Tyre. According to 2 Samuel chapter 5, after the death of Saul, when David had become king, it was some time before he was accepted as king by the rest of the tribes of Israel. When David first came king, became king, he was only accepted as king by Judah. So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, because Jerusalem was never conquered. The Canaanites were never driven from Jerusalem until the time of David. 
So we go on. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 years, 30 and 3 years over all Israel and Judah. So while David was in Hebron, which is the city of Judah, outside of Jerusalem, he only reigned for seven years and six months. Once he got to Jerusalem, only then did he reign over all Israel and Judah. So that's important to note. During that earlier period, the seven years and six months, once David assured control of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, we read a little further on in the same chapter, and David went on and grew great, and Yahweh God of hosts was with him. Once David displaced and took Jerusalem from the Jebusites, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. Now that house was in the city of David on Mount Zion in the recently captured Jerusalem. David couldn't build that house until he had taken Jerusalem. And then the very next verse... And because Hiram sent messengers to David, and he sent him all these supplies, and they, the people of Hiram, built David a house. And David perceived that Yahweh had established him king over Israel. He had only been the king over Judah for seven and a half years. And that he had exalted his kingdom for his people, Israel's sake. So, how do we examine this? How do we read this? Uh, Is Hiram just being a friend? And David realizes that he was made king over all Israel? Or that his anointing, having been anointed king over all Israel, had finally come to its fulfillment? According to 2 Samuel, when Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, that is the moment when David perceived that Yahweh had established him king over Israel. And therefore, David was already king over Judah. And therefore, Hiram must have been an Israelite and not a Canaanite. A non-Israelite or Canaanite king could not have made this decision for the chiefs of the tribes of Israel. David would not have made such a realization on the approach of a Canaanite king that he was king over all Israel because a Canaanite king did him a favor. Would David have taken a favor from a Canaanite king? He hated God's enemies with the perfect hatred. Only a notable and powerful Israelite king could make David come to that realization. And Hiram was the king of the most powerful city in northern Israel. So Hiram was actually submitting to David. And then David made the realization that he ruled over all Israel. Because Hiram submitted to David. That's what's going on there. The city of Tyre 
is mentioned in the account of Joshua as a part of the inheritance of Asher in chapter 19. But it is not mentioned again in scripture until the time of David and Hiram. Because those peripheral happenings are never mentioned in scripture. Only when they come into um, play with the main thread of the scripture, the, the account of scripture. So ostensibly, the children of Israel did not have to drive the Canaanites from Tyre. Because at the time of the conquest, the city was desolate. And there is archaeological evidence that it had been destroyed at an earlier time, meaning earlier than the invasion of Canaan by Joshua and the Israelites. <clears throat> and it was destroyed for some unknown cause. It's conjectured by archaeologists, whether it was war or earthquakes or whatever, they'll never know. So in relation to the Trojan Wars and his own description of the world of that time, the Greek poet Homer mentions Sidon quite often, but he never mentions Tyre. In agreement with that circumstance is the Judean historian Flavius Josephus, who tells us in Book 8 of his Antiquities, in relation to the time of Solomon, that now, that year on which the temple began to be built, was already the 11th year of Hiram, but from the building of Tyre to the building of the temple, there had passed 240 years. So, even though there seems to be an anomaly, as Hiram seems to have ruled Tyre for longer than 11 years when Solomon became king, if indeed the same Hiram was meant, because I tend to believe that the Hiram mentioned by Josephus is the son of the King Hiram that had submitted to David. So in spite of that, we see that nevertheless, Tyre was built anew by the Israelites, and Josephus dated that building to precede the temple by 240 years. So, if Solomon started building the temple in 950 BC, for example, because that may not be an exact date, then Tyre was built by the children of Israel around 1190 BC. Now, if Solomon didn't start building the temple in 950 BC, the date's not off by far. It can't really be off by more than 10 or 15 years, in my opinion. Tyre was built by the children of Israel around 1190 BC, in the middle of the Judges period, but after the start of the Trojan War. And therefore, it was never mentioned by Homer. That's why Homer never mentioned Tyre in the Iliad or the Odyssey, because Tyre was not an active city when the Trojan War began. It was only just being built around 1190 BC, 10 years after the Trojan War started, perhaps 10 years within a decade after the Trojan War started. But soon after it was built, Tyre quickly became the foremost Phoenician city. And it was the city out of which came the Phoenician colonies of the West. And it was indeed an Israelite city during this period. Later, 
speaking of the Phoenician colonies spread throughout the Mediterranean coasts and their founding, the Greek geographer and historian Strabo of Cappadocia wrote, Now, although the poets have referred more repeatedly to Sidon than to Tyre, and Strabo notes, Homer does not even mention Tyre, yet the colony sent into Libya, meaning Carthage, and Iberia, as far even as outside the pillars, him rather the praises of Tyre, meaning that the colonies sang the praises of Tyre, but not any praise for Sidon, because Tyre was the mother city of those colonies. Strabo also knew that the Phoenicians had colonies outside of the Mediterranean in what we know as the Atlantic Ocean. The Greeks knew that the Phoenician source of tin came from outside of the Mediterranean. They knew that. The Greeks knew that the Phoenician source of amber, which they traded, came from outside of the Mediterranean. And in truth, the amber came from the shores of the Baltic, the shores of the Baltic Ocean. And the tin came from Cornwall in Britain. But the Greeks didn't know that. Not at that time. Herodotus, I believe, mentioned the amber trade in the north. I don't think he placed it on the shores of the Baltic. I wrote about it somewhere at Christagenia. I believe in my original paper on the Phoenicians, which where I identify with them with Israelites. Here I have improved on and added to some of my proofs and arguments. But that original paper on the Phoenicians at Christagenia, and I'll link it with this presentation with the notes, is probably... It probably says more than I could possibly say here today. But somewhere I wrote about the amber, the Phoenician amber trade, right? I just don't know exactly where. Strabo yeah, may not Phoenicians, have known. I'm sorry. So I was just going to say they were very secretive of all their um, mining colonies, right? Because of competition with Rome and, and Greece, etc. Yes, absolutely. Even in, in the early times, Rome Rome wasn't a factor until the first Punic Wars. But earlier than that, the Phoenicians did compete with the Greeks, especially with the Phocians. Marseille was a Phoenician settlement on the southern coast of France. The Phocians took it from them in the 7th or 8th centuries BC. The Phocians are a branch of the Ionian Greeks. So Marseille is credited to them as having founded it, but there was a Phoenician settlement there earlier. The Phocians and the Phoenicians of Miletus were competing with the Phoenicians of Tyre and the Phoenicians of Carthage, and the Carthaginians seem to have been um, subservient and still allies of the Phoenicians of Tyre until the Persian War against the Greeks, at least. And, and there's reasons I believe that is because as soon as the Persians invaded Greece, the Carthaginians invaded Sicily 
and attacked the Greek settlements on Sicily, and I believe that was designed by the Phoenicians and the Persians to prevent the Greeks of Sicily and Italy from coming to the aid of the Greeks in Greece, because they had to go fight the Phoenicians in Sicily, and that left Greek Greece the Greeks in Greece weaker because there were more Greeks in Italy and Sicily at the time of the Persian invasions of Greece than there were Greeks in Greece. The greater number of Greeks were actually in Magna Graecia, which was the southern boot of Italy. Or it was actually most of the boot of Italy. So, so there's politics at play, um, global politics if you want, stretching all the way to Carthage in, in the Persian War against the Greeks. Strabo may not have known, as Josephus, as Josephus did, that Tyre was only starting to be built in the period of which Homer had written. So, Ty, so Saddam was mentioned quite often, as Strabo said, but Tyre was never mentioned by Homer and by other poets of the period. So Tyre as Herodotus also implied, was the mother of the Phoenician colonies. And, at least for the most part, because people are prone to moving about, there were no Canaanites in Tyre at that time, when those colonies were being established. Herodotus called Cadmus the Tyrian, rather than merely the Phoenician. That's in his Histories, Book 2. Cadmus the Tyrian. At the same time, the Canaanites elsewhere in Israel were in bondage. They were not free to move about as they pleased. In another place, in Against Appion, Book 1, Josephus cites the ancient annals of Tyre, which are now lost to history. They were actually translated I believe by another Hecatahius, Hecatahius of Adera, no, maybe it was Menander of Ephesus, I forget, I have that in my notes somewhere as well, I, I have it in my older writings, let me see if I could come up with that, no, I'm sorry, I can't, not, not in time for this presentation, I'm sorry, well, there was a Greek who translated the ancient Tyrian archives, the Annals of Tyre, which would be very much like the Tyrian version of the Books of Kings or Chronicles, perhaps. And they're lost, but Josephus had access to them. And he quotes from them. And he says here, in Against Appion, Book 1, where he wrote, Therein it was recorded, that the temple was built by King Solomon at Jerusalem 143 years and eight months before the Tyrians built Carthage. So Josephus dates for us the building of Tyre and the building of Carthage. And he says that in their annals, the building of our temple is related. For Hiram, the king of Tyre, was the friend of Solomon, our king, and had such friendship transmitted down to him from his forefathers. That's why I believe that Solomon's Hiram was the son of the original Hiram. 
which would make sense that the temple was built in the 11th year of Hiram. That's not a reference to David's Hiram, but to the son of David's Hiram, right? That's my opinion. So the building of the temple in Jerusalem was also a significant moment for the Israelites of Tyre, who described it in their chronicles, according to Josephus here. But the tribe of Asher was evidently not alone in Tyre. There was a workman whom Hiram had sent to assist Solomon in the building of the temple. And in scripture, we see that his mother was of the tribe of Naphtali, but it says nothing specific about his father. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 7, And King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram. That's the name of the workman also. Fetched Hiram out of Tyre. He was the widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass. And he was filled with wisdom and understanding and cunning to do work all works in brass, to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. He made all of the implements and vessels for the temple. However, Flavius Josephus, whose copies of scripture seem to have been more complete in many respects, wrote of this and he said, Now Solomon sent for a craftsman out of Tyre, whose name was Hiram, and he was by birth of the tribe of Naphtali on the mother's side, for she was of that tribe. But his father was Ur of the family of the Israelites. So Josephus did not know the father's tribe, but he knew that he was an Israelite. And that's in that same book eight of antiquities that we cited concerning the building of Tyre. Another passage concerning the tribe of Naphtali, which is wanting in the Masoretic text, so it's not found in the King James and other versions based on the Jewish text. Another verse is found in the Septuagint in Joshua chapter 19, where the inheritance of Naphtali is described. And while the inheritance of Naphtali borders on Asher, on the east of Asher, and Zebulun and Issachar in part of the south, parts of the south, and on the Sea of Kinnereth, or Galilee, and the land of Manasseh, east of Jordan on the east, it does not border the Mediterranean Sea, because Asher lies in between Naphtali and the Mediterranean Sea. Yet we read in the Septuagint, in Joshua chapter 19, in verse 35, in part, and the walled cities, counting this, describing the inheritance of Naphtali, and the walled cities of the Tyrians, Tyre, and Omathadaketh, Omathadaketh, and Kenareth, where it is evident that the city of Tyre, in the territory of Asher, is given to Naphtali instead. However, later, the presence of Anna, a woman of the tribe of Asher, Luke chapter 2, verse 36, who was present at the birth of Christ, can be best explained in the knowledge that her ancestors were Tyrians, 
As the island city was not taken by either the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The Assyrians never took Tyre at all. They couldn't. They, they didn't overcome it. And I believe that they didn't take Tyre because the Tyrians actually did pay tribute to the Assyrians at that time. But the Babylonians destroyed the mainland city of Tyre. I believe that was several years after they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the mainland city of Tyre. Tyre was split into a mainland portion and an island portion. The island portion was virtually impregnable. It couldn't be defeated either by sea or by land until the coming of Alexander the Great. It was an island a couple of hundred yards or so off the coast. And it was never connected to the mainland by bridge or, or by ramparts. The mainland city was destroyed by the Babylonians and it laid in ruins for over 250 years until the coming of Alexander the Great. And the story is that Alexander the Great had conquered the island of Tyre by taking those ruins and building a rampart in the sea to bring his troops out to the city in order to undermine its walls. And that's how Tyre was ultimately destroyed. But in that 250-year period, the before Alexander, the Tyrians were always friendly with the Persians. The Tyrians actually built many of the ships that the Persians had used in their invasion and war against the Greeks. And it's very plausible that after the passing of the Babylonians in the Persian period, that many of the Tyrians left the island and settled back on the mainland, which is why I believe we have Anna of the tribe of Asher in our New Testament, because those people would have kept their heritage intact since they never left their native land. That's my opinion. Yeah, and I think the um, seaport tire had diminished by then a lot, you know, in, in terms with all the empires, the sheer power of the Phoenicians and Tyre was nowhere near what it used to be that um, Alexander was even able to surround them with um, uh, the allies of, I believe, the island of Rhodes or their ships. They were very prominent and he surrounded Tyre and cut them off. And it shows you that they no longer were the power they, they once were, right? And that the uh, later nations like Greek were now overtaken and, and then later Carthage and Rome. Right. According to Herodotus, and I don't remember the exact number, but I remember it was around 2,500. But I could be off by 100 or two. According to Herodotus, the Phoenicians and other Persian resources had built approximately 2,500 ships for the invasion of Greece and lost every one of them at the Battle of Salamis, which Xerxes had been able to watch from the shores of Attica. He watched his entire navy, according to the Greek historians, he watched his entire navy go down in flames in just one day, according to the 
Greek historians. Of course, that is written from a Greek perspective, which is probably somewhat biased. But the even if it's highly exaggerated, the fact is that the loss at the Battle of Salamis was a tremendous blow for the Persians. And from that time, they had no battle with the Greeks at sea. And that's why the Greeks took to the sea. The Greeks understood that the Persians had launched an invasion that was so large that the Greek armies would be outnumbered 10 to 1. So the battle at Thermopylae, which is the famous story of the 300, the Greeks didn't expect to win at Thermopylae, that they only had 300 Spartan warriors to face a, a Persian army that Herodotus numbered at a million. But in a very narrow space, an army of a million isn't really that effective as it would be on a wide open field against an army of 300 men. Thermopylae is a very narrow pass. The Spartans, of course, didn't prevail at Thermopylae, and, and they didn't prevail at Thermopylae because one of their own Greeks, had a Greek had sold them out and showed the Persians a back way around the pass to attack those Spartans from the rear. So they were betrayed. That's the way the story is told by the Greek historians, including Herodotus. But what that did was that facilitated the ability of the Athenians to evacuate Athens, and they brought all of their men, women, and children to Salamis, an island right across, right opposite of Attica, of Athens and Attica. And that's why the Persian navy attacked Sal at Salamis, and that's what the Greeks chose. The Greeks understood that their odds against the Persians were much better at sea than they were on land because they had the advantage of, of being better sailors and, and more experienced warriors at sea. So that's the story. When Xerxes saw his navy go up in smoke, because the Greeks had advantages such as Greek fire, they had tactical advantages at sea as well as experiential advantages he decided to head back to Persia. But one of his generals, and this is the story according to Herodotus, one of his generals, I think his name may have been Bagosis or something like that, convinced him to leave a quarter of his army behind and he would defeat the Greeks. And in two subsequent battles, Plataea was one of them and Michaelae was the other, he suffered resounding defeats. So the Persians, they didn't stop agitating, but they changed their tactics and they never invaded Greece again. They never tried to invade the Greeks again. They were done with those battles. Yeah, that sea battle was very much like the 300 uh, battle. The, Athens did the Athenians did the same thing, all went into a very small area and then they could just fight them, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, boat by boat. And the uh, massive fleet couldn't be used effectively. But um, it's, it's really interesting that, um, that the Persians, all the advisors were saying, don't launch a major army 
instead used the uh, cunning tactics by you know paying off greeks against greeks and get them to, all to fight each other and um of course later on that's what they did and it actually that is worked, what they right? did they first they right. funded sparta to destroy Af um the athenians and then they funded uh, Thebes to destroy Sparta, and it, and it all worked perfectly until uh, Macedon, of course, rose up, and uh, that gave them the reason to come back and destroy Persia right, and unite all of Greece. Yes, it, it was the Persians who had instigated the Peloponnesian Wars, and the Greeks fell for it. Because even though the Greeks defeated the Persians, the Persians still controlled territory all the way through western Anatolia right to the shores of, of Ionia. They still controlled that. That was still Persian provinces. And the Greeks defeated themselves in, in many ways that they, they themselves, Greek armies were mercenaries for the Persians throughout that period. The Greeks were never, they were never united. They were united for the invasion in the after the Battle of Marathon, which I believe was in 490 BC, the Greeks united and came together to repel the invasion, but it was a very uncomfortable relationship between the Spartans and the Athenians. And they were still competing with one another even throughout that, that war in a lot of ways. After that, the Persians took the instigating war between Sparta and Athens. That's absolutely true. And, and it took them a hundred years to get to the point where they had encouraged the Thebans to fight with the Spartans. So, and, and Thebes didn't hold the primacy for long, but all of that persisted and all of that competition among the, even though Athens was defeated, even though Sparta had been defeated, the competition between those tribes, and, and it is a tribal competition between the Dorians and the Ionians, had, had persisted right down to the time of Philip of Macedon and Alexander the Great, and even beyond that to the coming of the Romans. There was After Alexander's empire was divided, those Greek city-states were still squabbling with one another incessantly until the coming of the Romans. They kept getting the Romans involved in their disputes with one another, and the Romans just came and took it all and took control of it all and expanded, began to expand their empire towards the east. That's the way I could summarize the history that's evident in... Polybius and and Livy and other later historians. But I think that's a really good lesson for us that if you are, are um, put aside your petty squabbles, you know, amongst locally, then someone else more powerful would just come over and rule over you instead. Then right, and then you're worse, a lot worse off in the end. Right, and and they kept the Greeks kept looking to the Romans to settle their disputes for them because they couldn't settle their own disputes. So the Romans just said, okay, you want us to keep settling your disputes? We're going to rule over you. And, and who could blame Rome? Just take them. It, it's, it, it's right. It's an important lesson of history that we learn that. You, you agree with your brother or you go into jail until you pay the last penny. <laughs> sort of matches that parable of Christ, right? Okay. We, we went on a long digression about the Persian Wars against the Greeks, but we're still back in ancient Tyre, 
and I've described the presence of naphthalene in Tyre. So the Septuagint seems to have merit in that aspect. But that's not all. In the blessing which Jacob had for Zebulun, we read in Genesis chapter 49 that Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for a haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Sidon. Yet the territory of Zebulun in northern Israel was entirely landlocked. Only Asher's border touched Sidon. But in 1 Kings chapter 9, there was a strange episode where we read, And it came to pass at the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of Yahweh and the king's house, because David's house wasn't good enough, Solomon wanted his own house. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, had furnished Solomon with cedar trees and fir trees, and with gold, according to all his desire. That then King Solomon gave Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee. And Hiram came out from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, and they pleased him not. And he said, What cities are these which thou hast given me, my brother? Hiram's like, What the hell are you giving me this for? And he called them the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul describes something that's bound off or roped off or measured off, right? The land of Galilee was primarily within the lands of the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And if Hiram was displeased with the cities which Solomon had given him in Galilee, it may well be because those cities were idle. They may have been deserted or empty. That's what it seems to me. Because Hiram was displeased with them. Why would he be displeased with them? Because he couldn't raise taxes from them, perhaps? Because he would have had to rebuild and resettle them, have them resettled before the land was any good to him? So the land, if it was unprofitable, it was only because it was probably uninhabited or at least very sparsely inhabited. And if that's the case, it's probably because Zebulun and Naphtali are off in the sea. That's my, my opinion once again. It can't be proven. But how does this prophecy of Jacob be fulfilled if Zebulun is landlocked in Palestine? So it couldn't have been fulfilled in Palestine. It must have been fulfilled somewhere else. It couldn't have been fulfilled in the land which Zebulun acquired in Palestine, being landlocked. Right, and that shows you that a lot of the Phoenicians could have been from, from Zebulon as well, right? Or fr from the tribes that were relatively close to the coast, they could have jumped on ships as well, especially in the north, right? That's my contention. That would be my contention. That would be the logical conclusion from the information that I'm presenting here that these tribes had all gone off, or, or at least a great number of them had gone off to the sea and sought adventure and riches and, and profit overseas or from the sea trade. And in that way would the promise to Zebulun begin to be fulfilled.
that Zebulun is actually dwelling in the cities of Asher on the coast of Phoenicia and taking part with Asher and with Naphtali in those endeavors, for which reason the cities of Zebulun were not pleasing to Hiram, and evidently neither were the cities of Naphtali. We don't know which 20 cities those were, but they, being in Galilee, they must have been primarily in Zebulun and Naphtali. After the conquest of Canaan, and once the Israelites strengthened in their possession of the land of Canaan, as the biblical records suggest, and the Canaanites remained their slaves, and I cite Josephus in Antiquities Book 8, once again, in reference to this, but it's very clear in the biblical accounts as well. When David had his census of Israel, Tyre and Sidon were among the places where it was conducted. And here, both of these cities are distinguished from the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. So Tyre and Sidon are evidently not the cities of the Hivites or Canaanites. They must have become Israelite cities. And that's in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 6 and 7, but it's also repeated in 1 Chronicles, the same account. Yahshua Christ also attests in Matthew chapter 11 and, and in Luke chapter 10, he indirectly attests that Tyre and Sidon are cities where Israelites are dwelling. The Lamentation of Tyre by Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 27, shows that Tyre was an Israelite city. In Israelite chapter 27, verse 6, we see the tribe of Asher. They're called Asherites, but it's not the Assyrians. It's the tribe of Asher. In Cyprus, or Kittim, an island of famous Phoenician colonies, Cyprus was famous for its Phoenician colonies, which was subject to Tyre before the Assyrian conquest. And that's explained by Josephus in Antiquities, Book 9. And again, in Ezekiel 27, 12, we see that the tribes of Dan and the Danan Greeks and Javan, the Jepethi Ionian Greeks, brought trade to Tyre. So, the Septuagint adds a line to Ezekiel chapter 27, verse 18, which is not found in the King James Version or in the Masoretic Text, which, all, which says that Tyre had received wool from Miletus and they brought wine into thy market. And Miletus was an ancient Carian Phoenician settlement in southwest Anatolia. Thales of Miletus, an early famous Greek philosopher, was said by Herodotus in his, the first book of his histories to be of Phoenician descent. He was one of the seven sages of the ancient Greeks, but he was a Phoenician. Concerning the prophecies which forecast the destruction of Israel and the Assyrian deportations, we find two mentions of Tyre in the Septuagint which are wanting in the King James Version. Why is this as so many mentions of Tyre in the Septuagint are not found in the Masoretic Text? You think the rabbis had some sort of conspiracy to obscure this history? To hide it from Christians? In Amos chapter 3, verse 11, where the King James Version states, 
an adversary shall be even round about the land. The Septuagint has a less ambiguous, O Tyre, thy land shall be made desolate round about thee. The rest of the verse agreeing, except that the Septuagint has countries, where the King James Version has palaces. Speaking to the children of Israel, Micah chapter 7 verse 12 in the Septuagint reads, And thy city shall be leveled and parted among the Assyrians, and thy strong cities shall be parted from Tyre to the river, meaning the Jordan River, and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. So surely Tyre was an Israelite city. You know, the people that translated the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek in the 3rd century BC, they would have had no reason at all to mention Tyre in these passages in Greek if Tyre was not mentioned in Hebrew. But somehow, these references disappeared in the Masoretic text, which is from 1300 years later, from 1000 BC or the 10th century BC. I'm sorry, 10th century A.D., from about 1000 A.D., is the earliest copy of the Masoretic text known, which is the Codex Leningradus. By then, Jews would be claiming that they're the Israelites and that we're Gentiles, right? So, yes. so this would all fit with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, agenda they have. Yes, I believe that these... That these um, Three important passages in the Septuagint, in Amos 3.11 and in Micah 7.12, but also back in Joshua chapter 19, where it said that Naphtali inherited the strong cities of the Tyrians and Tyre, Tyre itself. And then we see this workman in the time of David and Solomon, 400 years later, just happens to be of the tribe of Naphtali, even though he came from Tyre. So, these three important passages that we see in the Septuagint, I believe they were purposely dropped by the rabbis from the Masoretic text. Surely Tyre was an Israelite city. And the historian Josephus, and I guess the ma the rabbis didn't think we would read Josephus, right? That's what I, I think. The historian Josephus acknowledges that fact in his Against Appion, in Book 1, where he quotes a Greek writer, Theophrastus, and his writings concerning laws. And Theophrastus wrote, according to Josephus, that the laws of the Tyrians forbid men to swear foreign oaths. And Josephus tells us that he was speaking of Israelites. And then he goes on to cite Herodotus from the Histories, Book 2, Chapter 104, who stated that the Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine which is what Herodotus called the Judeans. There are several examples in the writings of Herodotus in Book 2, Book 3, and Book 7 of the Histories, where he mentions Syrians of Palestine in a context where it can be demonstrated that he's referring to 
the Judeans at Jerusalem. He even talks, and he doesn't mention them by name, but he even, Herodotus even mentions a battle where Pharaoh Necho had killed the king of the Syrians of Palestine, had defeated, he defeated the Syrians of Palestine on the plains of Megiddo. So if you go to that same period when Pharaoh Necho lived and you look at scripture, you'll find that that is when the Pharaoh of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, Pharaoh Necho had killed the, Judea, the king of Judah, Josiah, on the plains of Megiddo in 612 B.C., so Herodotus is talking about that same event 150 years later, and he calls those men of Judah that Pharaoh Necho was fighting against, he calls them the Syrians of Palestine. So we know where Herodotus mentions the Syrians of Palestine that he's talking about the people of Judah. And Herodotus stated in book two of his histories, that the Phoenicians and the Syrians of Palestine were circumcised. And Josephus points out when he makes that citation, citing from Herodotus, that there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised, excepting the Judeans, by which he is meaning the Israelites. And therefore, it must be his knowledge of them, meaning the Judeans, that enabled him to speak so much concerning them. And of course, in, in the time before the Babylonian deportations and before the return of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's not really proper to refer to the people of Judah as Judeans. That's a later term. But in Greek, writing in Greek, that's the term that, jo that Josephus was forced to use to describe the people of Judah, was the Greek eudahioi, which is Judeans. It's the only term he could have used, right? Writing in Greek. So he used it. So in that context, I would translate it as Judahites, because it refers to the people of ancient Judah. And saying Judahites or Judeans in his own time, Josephus really means the ancient Israelites. So, those Tyrians, having been circumcised, according to Herodotus, they must have been Israelites. They weren't Canaanites. That the Tyrians had such laws and brought them to their colonies is evident in the statement of Strabo in his geography in Book 3, where he's describing Iberians, and he says, the Turdetanians are ranked as the wisest of the Iberians, and they make use of an alphabet, and possess records of their ancient history, poems, and laws, written in verse that are 6,000 years old, as they assert. And there's a footnote in the Low Library edition which states that some think the text the Greek text, should be emended to read 6,000 verses in length. In either case, it is apparent that these Iberians, or so-called Phoenician Hebrews, 
surely had copies of the scriptures, and that was what Strabo was referring to. Once we understand Not the that Phoenicians, six thousand years old, but that they had a lot of verses, basically a lot of scriptures. Well, it could be interpreted in in the Septuagint chronology that the Book of Genesis did relate accounts that were 6,000 years old, or that were actually 5,500 years old by the Septuagint chronology. So that mistake, that, that misconception sh could be made, that perhaps the Turditanians had said that their scriptures reflect accounts that are 6,000 years old, and that would be very close to the truth, right? So perhaps Strabo mistook that for the books themselves being 6,000 years old, which they really weren't. <coughs> I'm sorry. That's how I would interpret that. So that would be true. So I wouldn't amend it to read 6,000 verses in length, actually changing the surviving Greek text of Strabo. Once we understand that the Phoenicians truly were Israelites, and all of the trade and agrarian undertakings, which they had throughout the Mediterranean basin and into the Atlantic for many centuries, we can see how the blessings to the northern tribes of Israel may have been fulfilled. Asher did dip his foot in oil, but at first it was primarily olive oil. It was the Phoenicians who are known to have spread the olive tree everywhere that they went. The olive trees of the Mediterranean can all be traced back to the olive trees of Palestine. Zebulun did dwell in a haven by the sea in Phoenicia because the Phoenicians were Israelites. They weren't Canaanites. To, to claim that the Phoenicians were Canaanites flies in the face of all of the history which we see, which connect it from the Greek myths, which connect the Phoenicians to the Danans, to the scriptures themselves, and throughout the histories of Josephus. They all prove that the Phoenicians were Israelites. Yeah, and I think most people have no idea of the sheer extent of the colonies of the Phoenicians, right? That, um, As we said, uh, Thebes was a major city in Greece. There were also a lot of other places they were settling in Greece, but also um, Anatolia or, or West Turkey, right? Caria, Lycia, Pamphylia, th those were Caligula, Caligula, those were Phoenician colonies as well, right? And then um, all, all of Spain, all of Carthage, uh, as you said, a lot of uh, France, Gaul. So, so they were everywhere. And all the islands, I'm sure they were settling all the islands like Sardinia, setting up their own towns and cities on other parts of the coast there as well, right? Well, Europe is truly the daughter of Phoenix. That's the Greek myth. And as I said before... <laughs> those myths represent historical truths. And the Greeks knew it. The Greeks knew that the Phoenicians were in Marseille, and, and the Phocians went and tried to take, they took it off them. And, and the, the Greeks also knew that the river valleys of, of what we know today as modern France were settled by Phoenicians. They knew that the Phoenicians were getting their tin from outside of the Pillars of Hercules, meaning somewhere out in the Atlantic Ocean, the Greeks couldn't sail there. 
if you read the Greek histories, the, the Greeks and, and later the Romans could not sail the Western Oceans because their ships would be taken by the much more numerous and more powerful Phoenicians in those eight regions. The ships would be taken, that their cargoes would be confiscated, they'd be made into Phoenician ships or sold, and their crews would go into slavery. They couldn't sail the Western Ocean. The Greeks could never explore the Atlantic because of the presence and power of the Phoenicians in the Western Mediterranean. So they were pretty much stopped up at Marseille, which they called ancient, in ancient times they called Massilia. They were stopped there. That's as far west as they ever got, that we ever heard of. There were individual Greeks who went on tours of the West and, and went through Gaul and places like that. There were geographers older than Strabo. They were able to venture that far West and back. But they went as more or less as individuals, not as a ship with a crew that could be construed as an act of war by encroaching on Phoenician territory or seaways that the Phoenicians controlled. Who had the same attitude later in history but the British Navy <laughs> and British shipping? And they protected their shipping the same way. And they insisted, the British Empire insisted that it have a monopoly on the seaways. Well, the early Phoenicians had the same attitude. I don't know if there's anything else we could add to that. The other tribes, the other northern tribes also factor into this. There's Issachar and, and even the tribes on the other side of the Jordan, Reuben and Gad. I'm certain that many of those men, with or without their women, had made the same venture. But it's just not documented in Scripture. It's not documented in scripture because the scripture only focuses on the central actions and characters, which are, are mostly the actions of the kings of Israel and Judah, and how and why they did good, or how and why they did bad, and the people in general. So you won't find yeah. in the books of Kings or Chronicles that in such and such a year that 10,000 men from Naphtali had gone to Tyre and got in ships and, and went to Greece or, or went to, went to Carthage or Tarshish, if you will. You won't find that. <laughs> It'll never be in the scripture, but the ships of Tarshish are indeed mentioned in scripture. So we know that they were engaging in that sea trade but the, the extent of it is never mentioned because where it is mentioned, it only has to do with the undertakings of, of Solomon. And in Isaiah, those ships of Tarshish are actually ships of Carthage. Carthage was already built in Isaiah's time. Isaiah wrote from the beginning of the second half of the 8th century BC. Isaiah began writing began writing around 745, 750 BC. So Carthage was built, I think Josephus said like 143 years after the temple was built. Carthage, according to Josephus, was built around 800 BC. 
Yeah, yeah, and it all adds up that um, as Israel went down, all these other colonies rose in prominence and then gradually forgot that they're a full ancestry, right, and that they were Israelites. But it doesn't mean that they weren't Israelites. Right. That that timeline all falls into place with the Song of Deborah being 1250 and, and the Sea Peoples being of Merneptah being 1210 and the Trojan War being 1200 and the building of Carthage beginning in 1190 and the temple being built in 950 and Carthage being built in 800. And if we take the writings of Josephus and what we can glean from scripture and from the inscriptions and what we could see in the Greek histories and legends and myths, it all fits together. There's really no major problems in the narrative that we could piece together from those sources. And it all makes perfect sense. Maybe someday I'll rewrite my Phoenicians paper if Yahweh grants me enough time here in this life and do a better job of piecing all that together. It was originally only meant to provide the evidence that the Tyrians or the Phoenicians were actually Israelites. That was the purpose for which I wrote it in a short format, in a single pamphlet. So I was forced to be concise. Okay. Thanks for being here. I think that covers the blessings of the Northern tribes as good as we could cover them. And Dan. Yeah, absolutely. The Phoenicians, <coughs> sorry, Phoenicians and Dan. Um, thanks, Mammy. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh.